Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber, your favorite JavaScript podcast. Today, I'm the one and only host and panelist, Dan Shapir, coming to you from Tel Aviv in Israel. And our guest is a returning guest. Always fun to have him on. It's Austin Gill. Hi, Austin. Hello, Dan. Good to see you again. So for those of you who don't know who Austin is, Austin, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, um, I am a developer advocate for a company called Akamai. We do CDN, web application firewall, edge compute, uh, all cloud computing services you would want, databases, um, object storage, BPSs. It's great. <laughs> Everything now. Yeah, you do lots of stuff at Akamai. I know a couple of people at Akamai, all of them great people. Yeah, it's great. I personally work as, yeah, I'm a developer advocate, but I spend, I don't know, I, I spend most of my time on developer education. So just hmm. teaching developers where sometimes there's overlap with products that we offer, but oftentimes, like in today's discussion, there probably won't be very much. And that's okay. We just want to make sure that people are uh, learning how to build the best websites possible. So you're being paid to engage with developers and teach developers? I suppose so, yes. Fun job. Pretty, pretty good gig, yeah. Yeah, good gig if we can get it. Um, and today we're going to talk about several topics, but the one that we're going to start with, I guess, is uh, CSS in JS, because it's kind of going to be the catalyst I, I gather for the entire discussion. Um, yeah, I, I would even take a step back and just talk about uh, sort of the CSS landscape in general and um, how it has evolved and, and some solutions have arisen in uh, the JavaScript world. Um, I think that's a great topic. I think yeah. most, I think many, if not most, JavaScript developers do not know enough CSS or even are afraid of it. So anything that can be done to alleviate the, that fear and, you know, get the developers using CSS, you know, more correctly or better is a good thing. So, you know, go for it. Okay. Yeah. So I guess um, it starts, it helps to start with a little bit of a timeline, at least from my experience. When I started, people were linking to CSS files from their projects. And you basically had to come up with your own sort of uh, solution to managing uh, the challenge of working with CSS and the nature of its cascade and specificity and how do you grow that uh, across a larger project. And eventually we had frameworks come in like Bootstrap or Foundation that would sort of provide these um, recipes or components, you might think of them, where you follow a little bit of a strict um, markup and class naming convention. And then they had provided the styles for you and that would apply to your web page. And that was all well and good, except that then you would ship an entire bootstrap file for a project that you may only be using a few parts of. Um, and that, If I can interrupt you for one second, I do think sure. it's worthwhile to touch on that point that you mentioned, which is specificity. Because uh, probably most of our listeners are aware of this, but just in case, the key thing to remember about CSS is that by definition, unless you know otherwise specified or structured, it's global. That is, every CSS rule can impact effectively any element in the page. Whereas most developers, when they're using frameworks, want to use components these days and you know have certain 
stylistic choices being global, like maybe light mode versus dark mode, but very often they want a lot of CSS rules to be uh, encapsulated, I guess, within a specific component, right? And that kind of goes against this, uh, the whole concept of CSS as being cascading and, and global. And that's what I guess yeah. is what you mean by specificity. Yeah, we're in kind of an interesting um, struggle right now between the way that CSS has worked for decades and was designed to work and the way that the web is sort of shifting in, in the direction of more component-driven design or component-driven construction. Um, and yeah, the global nature of CSS doesn't always lend itself well to component-specific uh, design. So uh, it's interesting because then, yeah, the, the specificity thing led to challenges with uh, modifying and customizing uh, your own version or creating bespoke uh, websites on top of these frameworks like Bootstrap. And maybe you get into specificity battles where you want to override something and you end up putting important on the end of everything. And it's just like yeah. a big pain in the butt, right? So uh, sort of a, a next phase was introduced by... Um, there were some... Well, maybe not the next phase, but another branch is uh, the branch of Atomic CSS, which has been around for a long time with ACSS, I think, was one of the first ones. And then there was um, Tachyons was another example. But I think it didn't really gain uh, a lot of popularity until Tailwind. So I think in this discussion, there's probably some, uh, you know, comparing pros and cons of libraries. And I'll probably be speaking to Tailwind as an example because it has a lot of great pros it also has some cons, and I don't want that to be reflective of how I how I picture the library or the the, the tool as a whole. But just because we're having a, a discussion of some of the things mm -hmm. about it, I may uh, I may say some things that the be things that I don't really like about want. it. <laughs> this is the yeah. podcast to be spicy on. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. Some of it will be true, some or some of it will be truths, and some of it will be opinions. Yeah, um, for sure. So anyway, we have Atomic CSS, and the whole the whole pitch of Atomic CSS is rather than having something that's like a button class that has 10 different property or CSS rules on it, you would have classes that correspond to individual rules. So they don't really have semantic meaning. They just have names like P5 is like padding of, I don't know, five pixels or some, some arbitrary value. Um, and then you end up composing your uh, button component together using all of these individual classes. So this has really lent itself well to component-driven development because you can basically compose all of your styles at a component level and then use that as an abstraction layer so that people aren't dealing with just a spaghetti code of different class names, um, but they're working with individual components. So um, I have I have uh, a qu a question and a comment about this, or maybe two questions, really. Uh, first, just to make sure that I understand what you're saying, is it's that if you're looking at a library like uh, Tailwind, then all the CSS class names are global, but yes. the way that you compose them together is on a per-component basis. Yeah, I mean, if you're working with components, yes. Um, but really, you can think of it as compose, composing classes on a per-element basis where needed. Yeah. So where in one 
in in a in a previous life you would have uh, added a class name to an element and then added all of your styles uh, to that class name. Now you're basically just composing several class names on that element, and none of them have any sort of semantic meaning of what the element actually represents, but they do apply their their classes. And because all of Tailwind classes are uh, or Atomic CSS classes are just a single class name. It's a relatively low specificity, so you're only dealing with um, the cascading nature of it rather than fighting over uh, rules being overly specific. So the obvious question that I have when, whenever I think about something like Tailwind is what's the benefit of this approach over just you know inline styles? I mean, at the end of the day, why is it better to have a, to add a class called P5 than simply having an inline style of padding 5? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that the, the biggest benefit is that you can put all of your style or all of your styles end up in a CSS file somewhere, which can then be cached, where um, to some degree, having inline styles may be faster for things that are above the fold or what is loaded and visible when the page first loads. Um, that's going to be faster than having to download a CSS file. Um, no, but I mean, but, you know, with inline style, what I mean by inline style is just instead of having a class attribute on the specific element saying class equals P5, why right. don't I have a style attribute on the element saying style equals padding 5? What's, yeah. what's the benefit, like, the fact that I have the letter P instead of the entire word padding, you know, what's what's the upside here? Yeah, so part of it is potentially the 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 cacheability of a CSS file that um, you don't have to write quite so much into your markup. Um, but then there's also considerations to make that around specificity, where inline styles are going to be more specific and may clash. Of course, if presumably if you're writing inline styles, that's what you want on that element. Um, but I would also say that uh, inline styles don't have access to things like uh, pseudo elements, pseudo classes, media queries. So you still need to write CSS to be able oh, to target those. So basically, things. what you're saying is that even though the attribute is called P5, in reality, it might actually mean, say, mean more than just padding five, it might be some sort of padding that is also dependent on some sort of media query. So even, so the, the name might be simple and imply a very simple concept that I could, that's, that seems like an alias to a simple inline style, but in reality it might either mean or be adjusted to mean something more sophisticated. Yeah, it could. It could be something like a, a complex uh, rule, like a transition that has timing and names and other different things. Um, you could have, I mean, especially with CSS variables, you could have a class that really just toggles a value of a CSS variable, um, which you could also do with inline styles. So it's um, basically th like people looked at, at CSS and said, oh, we wish we could have done it differently and hey they use class name to do it slightly differently and that's tailwind <laughs> yeah kind of i would i would say that the the biggest benefit or or one of the large benefits actually that is lost on <clears throat> inline styles 
is that Tailwind, um, any atomic CSS library provides uh, an idea. It's like a it's like a rudimentary version of design tokens, um, or or yeah. Uh, so it provides a limited scope of available values to choose from, which mm. can really help developers that um, either aren't very good at design or aren't part of the design team stick to uh, a limited set of constraints where just a blank CSS rule oh, okay. can have literally an infinite number of options. Yeah, th- right? that, ma- that makes a lot of sense that, you know, you they kind of, first of all, only have like the, P value again. Going back to the padding example, they might have a P eleven and P nine, but not a P ten. And That's also, correct. and also, they would guide you towards using certain uh, class names together, uh, and and not just you know throw any CSS rule that you know that basically crosses your mind or something. Yeah, or even managing you know uh, units like. You know, preferring rems over pixels or something. Yeah, so you don't uh, need to think about the the units. They they do it for yeah. you. And doing that makes makes for a more consistent, coherent look across an application. Which coherency is an underrated sort of design hack. <laughs> it's also just an like underrated cons- programming hack. Yeah, just <laughs> consistent spacing and colors looks great. Um, so that's and I think uh, the the sort of big benefit to. Uh, Atomic CSS, the reason why I want to focus on it as a good thing is, yeah, those those design token things, the, uh, the I mean, Tailwind, I think, did particularly a good job of shipping with um, what they call like sane defaults or, or good-looking default values, particularly around colors and fonts and stuff and spacing. Um, but the, the big sort of benefit around the Atomic CSS concept as a whole is that because you are repeating these uh, class names everywhere, you end up only defining your CSS for that, the CSS rules for those corresponding class names once in your entire application. So as your application grows, it sort of follows a, uh, what is it, a logarithmic growth curve that eventually flattens out to a line. Whereas if you rely on writing new class names for every single new component or every single new page that's added to the system, uh, you end up having more of a linear growth curve that over time produces a much larger uh, output than like an atomic version. And, and you also run into the problem where you can't modify certain uh, class names because you don't know where they're being used. You, don't, you yeah. don't keep track of everywhere that they're being used. So making a change can uh, break something somewhere else. And then you end up with... Um, the append-only style sheet because you you can't remove unused code because you don't know everywhere that it's being used. Yeah, that's that's one of the issues with the CSS. Obviously, uh, yeah. that uh, it's it's really scary to remove stuff out of CSS. I mean, certain tools like you know they help you, but they only really look at the state of the at the of the HTML at the load of the page, and you know if if you know the HTML changes. While the application is running, it can be really challenging to verify that a certain style doesn't get used somewhere. So you're absolutely correct that you know you remove a style and then all of a sudden your your styling breaks and it's really bad. Um, yeah, it's hard to track down where exactly. Uh, and also, so, and just another comment 
that if people think that the problem with the ever-growing CSS is a large download, that's not really the issue in most cases. From my experience, the bigger issue is that just having lots of CSS rules in and of itself is a significant overhead on the browser because the browser needs to compute and apply all these CSS rules. And if the, there are a lot of CSS rules and the page is complex in terms of the size and structure of the DOM, and, and usually these two go together, then it can, can be quite computationally intensive for the browser to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, the interesting thing with, um, I guess, the arguments against something like Tailwind is that you end up shipping smaller CSS bundles, but that complex, you're really just shifting complexity because you're moving those, those same styles need to be applied to different elements, but you're moving it from being in the CSS file to now in the HTML as you're composing those classes. And I think that the counter argument to that is that you know, gzip is really good about um, minifying and speeding up delivery of the HTML document if it's seeing a lot of this repeated code. Um, I don't have a practical example of like a real-world application that sort of went from CSS to Tailwind and, and showed what the difference yeah, was. I think it's more about really shifting complexity. I, I'm Again, I'm not so much concerned about um, the size of the download, to be honest. Uh, yeah. I, I'm more concerned about the, um, you know, the computational complexity for the browser, and even more so for the management complexity for the developers. So mm -hmm. you're really shifting the coalescing of common rules from the CSS into JavaScript, because you're basically relying that uh, you know if you need similar styles for some for certain things, then there'll be common components in the JavaScript code. Uh, because otherwise, if you've got two totally distinct components that you need to keep their style aligned, but you're not using a common CSS rule or class in order to define it, then it can become a maintenance headache. So, yeah. so you need to make sure that you shift this common code, as it were, into a shared JavaScript component. Yeah, well, even that becomes really a challenge with tailwind like presume like the the most basic solution is okay we have a button we want to make it you know border radius and like a little bit of padding and purple and you just throw those classes onto the the button component but then what happens when in one case you want to have a button with a red background so now you have you know the tailwind class for uh background purple on the component itself maybe you implement some sort of logic that injects other classes uh, at the implementation level where you implement the button, you can add another class name as the property, and then that gets appended to the end of the button. Well, that's fine for anything that isn't already defined with the existing classes. But now when you have a clash of saying the original button has background purple, and now we want to add a class of background red, uh, how do you do that? Or how does, specifically, how does that work with Tailwind? And the answer is it just kind of tosses its hands up in the air because you can have uh, a background purple class and a background red class, both on the same element, right? That's valid HTML or CS or uh, class names, right? But then the question is, how does Tailwind decide who wins between background purple and background red? The last one, and, isn't it? I mean, cascading. Well, and that is the tricky answer because in the HTML, maybe background purple 
comes first, and then background red. And so you might assume it's background red, but HTML doesn't uh, dictate the cascade of the CSS. The cascade of the CSS deter- is determined by where in the actual generated CSS style sheet um, that background purple class is defined and the background red class. So it could be that in the HTML, background first, background purple comes first, and then background red. But in the CSS, background red is defined first, and then background purple. So the winner would be still purple in this case. Does that make sense? Or was that? No, it makes sense. I'm just okay. trying to remember if that's how I picture that it behaved. I always assumed, so, I think, that if you had two classes assigned to the same element, and, and then the second one overrides the first one, regardless of, of the order in which the classes were defined in the CSS. But you're saying that that's not the case. No, because this comes back. This comes back to just like fundamentally how the web works. If you have a CSS uh, file and you mm. have two classes defined, it's for the same element, and they have the same specificity. It is the latter one that is going to apply. So the way that Tailwind figures this out is essentially, uh, it used to be that it would like do a build time step and generate your entire CSS file for you. And now what it does is sort of um, more on a dynamic approach that it only it only creates the CSS that it sees in your project. So as you add uh, class names in your project, it will start constructing the CSS file for you. So really it depends in the order that the Tailwind uh, transpiler walks through your project and finds those class names. If it comes across background purple first, it, that will be the first one in the style sheet. And then later on, if it comes and discovers background red, that will be appended after background purple. That sounds like a big mess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's something, yeah. And it's something that, you know, there, there's a better solution here, or I guess there's solutions that we've come across, which are like, well, uh, you just have to provide some sort of uh, runtime logic or maybe a build time logic, but some sort of JavaScript logic that says, in this case, instead of having both of these class names have some sort of logic that can turn one off and turn one on, turn one on, so that you never come into the case where both exist uh, in the actual generated class names. So again, it's basically shifting logic from <laughs> yeah. the CSS, from the cascading mechanism yes. into, let's say, React code that generates the appropriate virtual DOM. Yeah, or JSF. Yeah. So that that's kind of as far as I want to go with the Tailwind introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get into another branch of CSS authoring practices, with which is um, CSS and JS. So this was um, kind of nice because uh, it allows you to do well. It allows you to reuse knowledge that you may already have. So we call this transferable knowledge. Like if you come if you come into a project and you know CSS. You don't have to look at the documentation uh, to write for how to write or accomplish what you want in a CSS in JS solution. You just start writing CSS and that's what you have available. Um, And that's where I think Tailwind is close, but not quite on. They did some naming conventions that are not at all related to uh, the CSS spec, like letting and kerning. And basically for their design tokens, they have to come up with what they want to call the property or what the class name should, 
what the class name that corresponds to different properties has to be. So there's always someone making the decision on what to call these things. So just to and make to sure that I'm, that I'm uh, understanding what you're referring to. Uh, um, so for example, I know that in Svelte, for example, when you define a Svelte component, you can specify the CSS for that component inside the Svelte file. And that component and that CSS, while it looks like regular CSS, is in ca- is by definition the way that the Svelte compiler processes it is encapsulated or scoped would be a better term for that component. Is that kind of what you're talking about? So, so that is scoped CSS. Um, that is not what I would call CSS and JS. Scope CSS is exactly what you're describing, where um, you have some sort of authoring experience to write styles that are associated with a, a component. Um, it might be some sort of tooling, but there's there's frameworks like Vue and Svelte that have uh, a way of just writing essentially in a style block the CSS that corresponds with just this component. And then there's a transpilation step, which we're going to get to. Uh, but the transpilation step, basically, as it's building out this component, uh, it generates a custom class name that's like machine understandable, just totally random garbled text to create a class name that corresponds with that one component. And then it takes the CSS that was associated with that and puts that into a static file that is then part of like just the static assets when you when you ship your code. So it's slightly different. Um, CSS and JS... I believe is generally implemented as a runtime solution, so it's not it's not transpiled away. It's not sort of built and then yeah removed at build time. It actually runs when your application is running. So it's basically and, embedding effectively. So it might be let's say using an uh, an import statement, but to import CSS instead of JavaScript, and then the bundler effectively trans, transforms it into a big CSS, job, into a big string that it embeds in the uh, bundle that it generates? Is that what we're talking about then? No, so that, that would still be like the scoped CSS solution. So CSS and JS, it, it, there's different libraries, there's different implementations, but I, I think what they eventually do is, uh, let's say when you use a component that has this uh, CSS and JS uh, implementation, it doesn't get compiled away that that runtime. What that runtime does is it will actually append a style sheet to the page with the CSS for that component as that component's being used. So it's probably following some sort of singleton pattern that when this component is used, add this uh, style sheet or style block to the page and then only do that once each time the component is sort of used. But again, um, the fact that it's called CSS in JS is because rather than working with independent CSS files or SAS files or whatever, mm-hmm. the CSS itself is handed over to the bundler, as it were, as part of the build process. Yes. yes. Yeah, and that's um, it has some interesting use cases, but I think a lot of the arguments against uh, CSS and JS specifically is the dependency on runtime. On runtime code, like we're we're starting to see, or we've been seeing for a while, a pushback against a lot of client side code because uh, it adds a lot of unnecessary overhead. Not just like you said in uh, download times, but specifically around runtime code. It's the concern is around 
uh, how much client side resources it's using. To so let me ask things. it from a reverse perspective: What's mm-hmm. the upside of sticking the CSS into the JS? Why do it in the first place? Uh, I <laughs> well. I'm probably not the best person to ask because I never quite got on board with it. Um, but I would say a lot of the benefit or a lot of the draw was around the authoring experience. So being able to co-locate your uh, styles with your markup is really nice because that has sort of automated dead code elimination when you either modify the styles on that uh, component or just stop importing the component altogether. Um, yeah, that's probably what I would say. I mean, there's there's a lot of benefits as well with the runtime code where you can do sort of the logic that we described with Tailwind. One of the challenges of having like conditional style or conditional CSS styles, um, CSS and JS solutions, because they run in the runtime code, it's a lot easier to uh, apply this sort of dynamic runtime-based logic to say whether um, the color of a button should be red or purple based on the props that it receives. And especially if you need those props to be something that's defined at runtime, then it's not even something that's possible at build time. So if I'm understanding correctly, basically in the same sense that uh, React put HTML inside the JavaScript files, you know, thanks to the concept of JSX. So the basically, if like JavaScript is eating web development, so if we put the HTML into the uh, the JS files, and it's a good thing, why not also put the CSS into the uh, JS files because that must be a good thing as well, and then we can kind of uh, have like uh, this uh, everything that's related to the component's look, functionality, and behavior being encapsulated in a single file or this folder, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, I mean, you know, everything in moderation, right? But but generally, I think that it's a good thing. I'm, it's at least good to have the option. Yeah, I'm guessing that, and it's a guess, that maybe one additional concern, at least back in the day, was the fact that the CSS download is render blocking and putting it into the JavaScript means that I can load CSS without blocking, but it'll be there when I need it because the JavaScript that's used to put the relevant HTML into the page, you know, is also mm. the JavaScript that also includes that CSS that it needs when it puts that HTML into the page. Yeah, so some sort of uh, perform- performance or uh, like perceived performance sort of thing. Um, especially no, it's, in it's, like a, a, it's in a actual, spa. It's actual performance because, again, it's it's avoiding render, downloading render blocking CSS right. when, you know, when you don't actually need to block for that particular CSS, but the browser can't know. Yeah. In, in like a spa setup, that would make a lot of sense. Um, if you have to render, if you're doing server-side rendering, you would still want that CSS yeah, to be available. I, I understand what you're saying. So basically, I'm in a spa, I'm going to the second page, I'm downloading some additional component code for the for components that are 
used on the second page that weren't used on the first page. I download their code. I'm also downloading the styles that they will need because it's yeah. all bundled together. Okay, I get, yeah. I get that. So, yeah, and that's that's interesting. And so uh, I, I kind of... So as I said, I, I've never been much of a fan of the uh, CSS and JS solution, particularly because I was really anti-JavaScript uh, as a means of delivering CSS. I think the browser does it. I just, I just think, I don't know, the browser does a really good job and has done a really good job of receiving a CSS file, caching it, being able to parse it quickly, download it, and not have to add more JavaScript as code that needs to be parsed during the runtime and during user interactions. So I never really got on board with that, although I did see some of the benefits, particularly around authoring and co-location of styles um, and, and sort of the maintenance. Uh, and also the fact that I know CSS and I want to be able to bring that knowledge and the fact that, uh, well, we'll get to this actually in a moment. Um, but then I did try Tailwind and I like a lot of things about Tailwind. Um, I think I've used it in several projects because I haven't had anything better to go for. Again, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to speak uh, disparagingly about the project. I, I think that they do an excellent job. But I just I think that I have very particular uh, intentions and, and goals. So I love the fact that there's this uh, design token language to choose from, right? Limited amount of choice, very coherent styles, everything is consistent. That's great. Um, but I never liked the fact that every time I had to look up something in, that I knew how to do in CSS, I had to go to the documentation in Tailwind, and I just could never remember it all. They've gotten better with with uh, VS Code having sort of some CSS IntelliSense or some packages or things like that. Um, and at the time that I was really using it, they didn't have the sort of syntax where you could add just arbitrary CSS values to the rules. Um, mm -hmm. That's like a new syntax that's been pretty cool. Um, but the fact is that I wanted to sort of have a little bit of both. So for years, I had been sitting on my hands, knowing what I wanted and not actually having it. So eventually I said, you know what, let me let me go for it. I want to create a library that has the benefits of atomic CSS with the authoring styles of CSS and JS. So that then I can come with my own like design tokens, my knowledge, my transferable knowledge of CSS, be able to write what I want and have... Um, all of those benefits in one place, co-location with my, with my components, but then have a step that takes that function execution, that CSS and JS function declaration, and basically replaces it with just the list of class name, atomic class names. And at the same time, sort of in the background, builds my CSS file for me. And that, so, ladies and gentlemen, is how open source projects get created or yeah. born. <laughs> yeah somebody so, has an itch <laughs> yeah it's uh it was funny because eventually yeah it just got to the point it was like no it's a good idea someone's gonna build it though like it, it, we're close we're we're really around it as a as a as a community someone's going to do it and in fact someone someone had done it there's a couple of uh authors that had pursued something similar and and accomplished some things but still none of them were quite what i was looking for so again i'm just being very picky um, but the idea is that when you can write things this way, uh, you can, well, 
with with CSS and JS, you can kind of get like TypeScript benefits where you can you can author a library that has a type definition that can help people write their uh, styles using both what is available in CSS, but then also maybe providing some sort of uh, configuration file that has these sort of design tokens and have you know the nice experience where as I'm typing, I'm being recommended which which of the available design tokens I can choose from for sizing or color or fonts or things like that. Um, there was a really funny sort of I don't think this is how you should be using TypeScript, but I'm going to use it that way anyway. Uh, in building this project, because I guess let me t- let me take a step back. The project is uh, and 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 even a step back further. Don't use this project. We'll get to <laughs> the end of the story. We'll get to the end of the story where I basically was I built it, I got it working, I was dog fooding it, and then the developer experience is terrible, and I'll explain why. But uh, so it started as this. Um, basically, I want. I want to author in my JavaScript files and I want to remove that code, right? So inherently right there, I have to have a transpiler. Yeah. Because you have to do code, you know, take this code and replace it with something else. Yeah, going back uh, to this developed example that I gave a while back. That's, yeah. you're, you're, taking Java, you're taking CSS rules or classes or whatever that are injected into, that you as a developer write in the uh, JavaScript itself, but because you want to, to have it not be dependent on JavaScript at runtime, on JavaScript load and JavaScript execution, you actually need to move it into a separate CSS file that the browser can just load. And obviously, that requires effort from, let's say, the bundler or the builder or the transpiler, whatever you want to call it, to yes. take extract that code out and, and stick it somewhere, transform it a bit maybe, and then stick it somewhere else. Yeah. So, so the way that that works is um, when you have a transpiler, there's a there's a number of different options to choose from. These days, sort of the far and away winner is Veep, which itself is not really a transpiler, but more of like a a, a build tool. Sort it's of a wrapper to yes, build or something, isn't it? To, and, yeah, and so others it, and other things. Yeah, so it wraps ES build for uh, for. The production build, and I think it wraps rollup. I think rollup is the yeah. yeah during development, and that's so that or or one way or the other. But yeah, essentially at development, you want to have you want to be using uh, ES modules in the browser because those are faster to reload instead of having to build the whole thing. Um, but then for production, ES modules are still not quite the right solution for well, most projects. It's because like we, you might end up with way too many tiny files. Uh, yes, and a weird and a weird uh, waterfall of network requests for yeah. Uh, dependencies, yeah, exactly, or circular dependencies or something like that. Um, so anyway, yeah, so it uses rollup under the hood, and that led me into uh, the journey of learning what the heck a transpiler is uh, and how to write a plugin for these things. And it was, it was a surprisingly painful process for someone that had never done it before. But I think it's incredibly valuable. And that's sort of been the big takeaway of this whole journey is I want to get the word out there uh, and teach people what transpilers are and how they work. Because I think that uh, they're basically, they're like magic for, for your source code. They can, take your, they can take your entire code and transform it into something completely else. You know? 
So yeah, and they're definitely all the rage these days. Uh, yeah, and I think that there is some interesting discussion around moving away from build tooling and JavaScript these days. You can have a pretty interesting development process with components and you know certain nice CSS features and just like ship the actual code that you write instead of having it go through a build step. But I don't think we're I don't think I'm ever going to step away from a build process for a lot of different reasons. Um, but anyway, so you get this transpiler, you write a plugin for it, right? So in this case, you write a plugin that's compatible with Rollup that will work with Vite as well. And the way that this, the way that I wrote this plugin to work is essentially uh, a transpiler. What it will do is it will walk through every single. Uh, file in your code base starting from a, a specific file. So you start at like a root JavaScript file and it will walk through all of the things that it imports and all the things that those import and allow you to tap into different uh, places in that file based on what the code looks like. So in order for it to know how to do that uh, or do it efficiently, it will generate uh, an AST, an abstract, an abstract syntax tree which is a whole other completely different world that application developers never need to learn about. But what is it? Platform developers, the people that work on like build tools or whatever, um, that is like very relevant. Yeah, you can kind of think of it in a way, if it helps some of our listeners, like if you've got HTML and the DOM as the tree of objects that represent the DOM, and you can think about an AST as a sort of an, an object tree that represents your source code. Uh, and yep. then you can do transformations on it effectively. So you can transform your code into, you can inspect your code, see what you can traverse your code, inspect your code, and then modify your code and then generate code from that modified AST. And effectively, like as you said, modify the code that that you originally had. So it's kind of a way to do transformations on your code at at build time. Like you said, for example, in order to extract certain things out of the code and move it somewhere else. Yeah, and, and it's pretty fascinating. I would say if you've never seen what an AST looks like, it's good, like mouse blogging it on a podcast it is not the best format. Um, <laughs> so I would. I would encourage people to go to astexplorer.net. Um, and this provides you with, uh, on the left side, somewhere that you can write a JavaScript application. And on the right side, it shows you the actual generated JSON or tree representation of that thing. So like const A equals hello world will literally generate 34 lines of JSON, sort of nested JSON things that explain you know, that the entire thing is a program and inside of which it has a variable declaration. Inside of that, there's a variable declarator, which is the name of the variable and then the value of the variable and then the type of variable it is. And it, it's fascinating. Um, it seems like a whole bunch of stuff that you don't, would never need. And in general, you don't need that information unless you need to do some sort of uh, uh, translation or transpilation. And then all of these things become very interesting because what a transpiler will do is allow you to take an AST of your entire application and then write what's called commonly referred to as a 
a walker or a program. It's like the plugin that basically walks through the code. But instead of walking through every single line of that entire AST for your whole project uh, or for every pro- every file in your whole project, uh, it allows you to also hook into just very specific things. So if you only want to hook into every time that, let's say, in the Svelte compiler, that the let keyword is used. Svelte does something kind of funny with let. Um, it doesn't use... <laughs> kind of it doesn't funny. Do, it doesn't... Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't, <laughs> yeah. So, so it doesn't do... It doesn't behave the way a vanilla JavaScript let yeah. works, right? And so what the JavaScript... So what the, yes. So what the Svelte compiler has to do is basically find every instance in your entire code base that you use let to define a variable and then replace that with its own sort of reactive reactivity system. Um, so that's amazing if you think about it, how that works. So... That was all very fascinating. I was able to write a plugin that would basically uh, find. So I, I wrote the way the the way that uh, Particle CSS works is it provides you with a function called CSS inside of which you can uh, put in an object style notation. You can use string style notation for like your CSS rules, right? So the first challenge is I need I need to I need to be able to look at my source code, find all of the instances where this CSS function is being used, and then parse the value of that into to generate just a string, replace the function execution with just the string of class names, right? Yeah, in a way, it kind of, again, if I'm going to use a bit of an analogy, it's a, a bit similar to what happens again with JSX, because JSX mm-hmm. seems to be translated into a series of function calls but since these function calls generate effectively JavaScript objects, you might think of an optimization that just replaces those function calls with the actual resulting JavaScript objects that you can, uh, you know, figure out at, at, at build time. So basically what you're saying is you have something in the code that looks like a function, and that function seems to be returning string, but since that string can be known at build time, then why do we need to have that function call in place? We can just, in the resulting output, just have embed the resulting string and and be done with it. Exactly. So that that is essentially how the the, how the how the plugin works. It it walks through your code, it finds all of these uh, instances it's being executed, it replaces them with the static value. And at at the same time that it replaces them, it takes whatever properties you wrote and actually creates the corresponding CSS in a different file somewhere. So it generates the CSS for you. And that's all that's all interesting, but it creates a lot of challenges. First of which is not everyone likes to use the same name for that function that it was imported with. So you can rename imports when mm-hmm. you use them, right? So my library exports a function called CSS. But if you want to do something different, you might say import CSS as styler, stylerification, whatever, you know? Yeah. So, so, as a, so as a transpiler or plugin author, uh, you have to add some logic that says, okay, uh, Mr. AST, Mr. Transpiler, I want you not just to find when my CSS function is called, but I want you to find where it's imported because we also might as well get rid of the import statement. Yeah, for sure. And when you find that import statement, 
Is it doing any sort of renaming? In that case, we're no longer looking for a function called CSS. We're looking for a function called, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm thinking, for example, about what, let's say, Quick does, where it has the, mm-hmm. the server dollar and, and mm-hmm. all those other types of, you know, everything, component dollar and, and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, and to be honest, I, I don't know what they do if if somebody tries to rename those, if, if it just breaks or they can deal with it. It's an interesting question. Yeah, I imagine, I mean, you can get it to work. I was I was able to, it's just, Part of this story is around, you know, the CSS, the nature of CSS these days. And part of it is here is my here's what my journey looked like and some of the stumbling blocks and things to consider if you want to go this way. Mm-hmm. But so, by the way, so quick and also bling uh, intentionally decided to just put dollar at the end of those things. And, and so I'm assuming that, you know, their treatment of names is much more strict. Let's put it this way. Yeah, I think. I think that's an important distinction that they chose because you you really want to call out when you're doing something funny that the <laughs> yeah. compiler is doing something funny and it's not it's not going to work the way that the code looks it's basically going to be rewritten. Yeah, um, for sure. I did some yeah. I've done some work with Solid and it's sort of the same thing yeah, they have blink. a server thing and essentially yeah, essentially what they do is they take one function execution that represents your like server code and they replace that with Part of the part, like part of the section that needs to go in the client, and part of the section that needs to go in a completely different file away from where the component is. Yeah, it's integrated into the bundler. Yeah, exactly. It's fascinating. Um, But yeah, so you were doing a similar thing, basically. mm -hmm, Yes, and this is where we get to the part of the story that everything sort of caught on fire and fell apart because then I got it working, right? In theory, where we are in this conversation, the code is working, it's building the CSS, it's replacing the stuff, the the, ex, the, the function executions with just static uh, strings. Great, love it. Except uh, when you get to that same button example that we had before, where you have some border radius, some padding, and maybe two different buttons, one's purple and one's red. So you say, okay, let's create an object that has all of the shared properties for both buttons, padding, border radius, font size, whatever. And then let's take that object in a variable and then call the CSS function and destructure the value of that object and only then add background purple for one and background red for the other. So now what you're doing is picture a JavaScript file where you say const shared styles equals uh, object, couple of properties on it. And then later on, you reference that variable. Very, very basic. One of the first things you learn how to do in JavaScript. Variable into a function. Take that into a transpiler, and it's incredibly difficult to do. Because now, the transpiler is giving you a look at your, co- a look at your code as an AST, not as a runtime where you have access to the variables that are alive and present in the file. Basically, what you're saying is that for this to really work perfectly, what you kind of want to do is effectively run some of the JavaScript at build time or transpile time and be able to kind of share data across both these separate run 
times. Like, you know, an object might be created at build time, transformed at build time, but by code that executes at build time, gets to some sort of uh, final state. And that final state is the start state for the runtime. Exactly. And it's really, really difficult because the AST will tell you the exact line that your uh, target uh, expression was found on in the source code. So when I'm when I'm executing the CSS uh, function with a, a reference to that variable, the the transpiler will tell me, yeah, it's on this line, and this is what it was called with. It was called with variable styles. Uh, but then there's no way to ask the transpiler, well, what is the value of styles? It's like. Pfft. I don't know. It's just a. It's just a string, basically. It's, uh, the name of the um, variable. That's all you get. It's the yeah. That's all you get. So you can you can then take the name of the variable and walk the AST and find the reference of it in the same file and then grab the uh, the from you know the end the first line to the end line of that variable and then you can use something like uh, what is it that they tell us never to use in JavaScript, uh, where you There's where so you execute. Many where you execute, a, you you take a eval. eval, yes, yes. Which spoiler spoiler, I did use eval to to get my code to run, but I think it's fine in a build tool. Um, but anyway, you could take this. It's again not an object representation; it's a string of an object, and you could JSON parse it or eval it or something. But then the sort of boss mode or like the final boss of this transpilation nightmare comes, which is what happens if that variable is not defined in the same file, but it's actually imported from a different file. Now you have a variable defining your styles in one file, being imported into this file that we're working on and being used in your CSS file. It's, it's I don't know, it's an impossibility to, to figure that out, if you ask me. Well, so it's interesting. There are some programming languages that kind of take this in stride. Like Lisp has its own macros concept and stuff like that, so code that modifies code. But I, but I agree that it's much more of a challenge in something in JavaScript or TypeScript or whatever. Yeah. So I spoke with Daniel Rowe from the Nux team, who had basically mentioned that you could potentially have some sort of uh, sandbox that does. Uh, what is it? It uh, it tracks the code that the transpiler is looking on, looking at, and analyzes it as runtime code. And I think that you had mentioned something before. Yeah, before so, we started recording. Yeah, so a prog- so something like a uh, uh, month ago, or uh, well, no, actually less, like uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Manu, uh, one of the main developers working on on Quick over at Builder.io announced that uh, he got something like uh, bun-styled macros working in Vite. So effectively, he's really talking about something really similar to what you're doing. And and indeed, he says, and I'm quoting him here, that this will have huge impact for all kinds of new libraries, particularly styling ones like Panda CSS. Uh, so, so yeah, it's for some really similar... To, to your intention, but so I, I I've seen this post by Manu, but I've not played with it yet. So I, I have no idea about uh, the capabilities and limitations of what he's done. All I know is that he's a really smart guy. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, so that's it's it's funny that you mentioned Panda CSS because that was actually going to be uh, maybe the next thing that I mentioned, or at least what I was going to shout out uh, at the end of the show because the the state of particle CSS is I basically gave up on it. I, I hit that roadblock and said, and I you know implemented a lot of great features, had a lot of cool learning experiences, but ultimately I wasn't going to get over uh, the translation step of potentially shared styles that are imported from different files. Not, I'm, not, I'm not that guy. I'm not smart enough. <laughs> uh, but uh, I did come across this project, Panda CSS, which uh, is very similar. So they... Uh, Sage is the, the sort of developer behind Chakra UI and, and now Panda CSS. And I was able to, between the time that we uh, scheduled this call and are recording it today, I discovered Panda CSS and was able to have uh, a call with him and like talk over, you know, the, the the architecture and the future of it. And and we went down this path of talking about transpilers and the challenges here. And I was like, somehow in Panda CSS, they were able to figure out this problem. And they did it by avoiding transpilers, actually. So they ship a little runtime code, but instead of the sort of CSS and JS approach of taking the code and injecting it onto the page, they sort of do some build time code generation, and then the runtime only does the uh, styles to static class name generation. It's pretty fascinating. I haven't dug into it enough, but so far, I'm really enjoying it. And they provide some really cool solutions around uh, not just the atomic CSS thing and the CSS and JS thing, but providing something that I think would also make uh, CSS purists a bit happier, where you can define uh, recipes mm. and patterns that would correspond to think of like a class name, uh, like a button class name that has all of the different rules for a button except you're not relying on an abstraction like a component level abstraction. And you're also not relying on it living within just uh, a CSS file somewhere. So I, I don't know if I've explained that <laughs> clearly enough, but there's a lot of benefit there in that uh, you're not relying on a, on a uh, component level abstraction, which we've seen in the JavaScript world can have performance implications where you have a lot of yeah. components just for like, just a lot of wrapper components for nothing. Um, and yeah, it, it provides a way to sort of retain or regain that sort of semantic meaning of what these styles are, while at the same time still offering the benefits of atomic CSS. So basically what you're saying is that we should be looking at Panda CSS. Yes, I would encourage it. Um, I am not, affiliated in any way except that I had a meeting with Sage and was a big fan and you know now I'm trying to promote it but interesting I'll definitely doing, give doing, it a look yeah yeah uh, I've been enjoying it uh, I think it's not quite as straightforward or, or quick at prototyping things as just Tailwind is because with Tailwind you start writing your markup and then you're just right there with the class names very easy to get going um, but you can drop in, you know, you can, I guess the, 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 the barrier there is you have to import a CSS function, and then you can just start writing your CSS in place of class names. Mm. 
Cool. Um, yeah. By the way, what which framework are you currently using it with? Uh, so I am using it in a project with Quick. Uh, just getting started with a, my next sort of teaching series and and giving these two a go. Uh, I've tried Quick a couple of times and hit some stumbling blocks, but I'm I'm giving it another go. And I, I find I think I finally got my head wrapped around uh, what I needed to. So it's not not so much the library as much as the 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 author or the developer. Yeah, we've had by the way we've had um, Mishko on our show twice, yeah. and we're actually scheduled uh, scheduled with him to bring him on a third time. And I actually got to meet him in person like a few weeks ago when he visited uh, Israel. So we went out together. It was really fun to you know chat about uh, tech and about life. He's a great guy. Oh, yeah. He seems incredibly intelligent. Yeah, very outgoing. Um, so before we wrap up and move on to picks, because we're we are now we're in, uh, is there anything else that uh, you would like to cover in the context of the stuff that we were talking about? I, I think we covered a lot and it was kind of a, a full journey. So hopefully that... Uh... I mean, short answer, no. <laughs> I hope that people hope that people learn stuff, and I hope that people uh, that are curious and want to scratch that itch of wanting to do something that you can't do with just JavaScript uh, would look into transpilers and be uh, encouraged to, and ho- hopefully also like learn some things and some potholes that you won't be able to do. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that the advent of transpilers and compilers is like. The, the new horizon or the next horizon in front-end development. You know, I think all of the frameworks are embracing com- uh, com- compilation or transpilation in some form or another. Uh, very f- Even React, which for the longest time has remained like strictly just the library, is now has the core team is working on React Forget as their own compiler. So it will be really interesting when we get to this point in time where all frameworks have their own compiler. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, I think the future of the front-end developer is, is going away because <laughs> there's just, well, there's just AI so much that you have to... <laughs> no, not necessarily that. It's just that there's, you, it, there's you're going to have to specialize. Like there's so much to learn at this point that, uh, and and the lines are getting so blurred that to really be effective, you have to be knowledgeable on what the front end can and cannot do, what the back end can and cannot do, because now you're you're moving some of your back end code sitting right next to your front end. Um, you have to be aware of different types of runtimes, like is this going to run on a server or an edge? Uh, runtime. And then now you also need to be aware of how transpilers work and, you know, when, when you need to, when you need to reach for one. And if you do, what limitations you have in that context as well. It's just, there's so much. And somehow all of this is still related to the front end. Yeah. But aren't like meta frameworks or uh, whatever we decide to call them effectively supposed to address this uh, complexity? Like, just use Next.js and we'll handle all the complexity for you. Well, yeah, until you hit those edge cases where, you know, you're you're kind of stuck in 
why is this working or why is this not working or why am I allowed to do this or should I be writing uh, SQL queries from this file input? I don't know. Like, you know, like, uh, I don't think, I think that these tools are going to allow us to be more productive and not need to know those things in order to build it. But we still will need to know some of these things in order to understand how they're working and, and where the where the edges are. The question that I'm asking myself, and that's probably an, a topic for discussion for another day, is, okay, we're getting all this extra power and the complexity that comes along with it, but do we actually need it? I mean, at the end of the day, most web developers are pretty much writing the same web applications that you know we were writing 10 years ago. So the question then becomes, why do we actually need all this extra power and complexity? Uh, well, what are we actually leveraging it for? Um, you know, Because it's fun. <laughs> you know, Because we our generation was raised on home improvement and Tim the Toolman Taylor, who said, more power. <laughs> Never mind us. Yeah. Let's cut that out. Just cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're keeping it in. Uh, anyway, okay, great then. So uh, with that, let's uh, let's move over to picks. Uh, so I'll start. Um, so my first pick is that um, I want to shout out again how great attending conferences really is. I mean, we had such a lengthy break from you know in-person pod- uh, um, conferences because of the whole COVID thing. And also, it seemed that a lot of uh, conference organizers like uh, kind of gave up. So even when COVID ended, there was a pretty lengthy duration where conferences were more scarce and far and you know further in between. But it seems that they're finally making a comeback. And I can't say how great that you know can't say enough how great that is. Uh, and so this year, I'm actually participating in a whole bunch of conferences. I'm, I'm up to five conferences so far. And, mm. you know, there's a sixth on the way, something like that. And uh, the last one that I participated in, uh, actually a week ago, and, you know, relative to the time that we're recording this, uh, it, it was on, the, uh, on uh, June 27th. That was a React Next conference in, in Israel, actually. So I didn't actually have to travel for that one. Turns out that it's the second largest React conference in the world. Uh, we had something wow. like, uh, I think, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 attendees um, and lots of great speakers, some of which have been on this podcast, like uh, Tejas and uh, Gil Tayar and, and others. Um, and also uh, some that we will have, like uh, Eric. I forget his last name. Uh, Eric, uh, I'll remember in, in, a, in a bit. Um, uh, Eric Wendell, uh, we, we, are, we are actually scheduled with him. He'll be coming on, this, on a future episode of this podcast. He also was at, at this conference. Um, and, and that's the thing I wanted to say about these conferences. Is for me, it's the best thing about the conferences are the people you meet. Uh, the hallway conversation, the the conversations that you get to do in the speakers' room, uh, all the, the the you know you go out for for you know for drinks or for dinner afterwards. 
it's it's really really great. The people are wonderful, very knowledgeable. I always learn a bunch of things, and again, not not necessarily from the talks, but uh, you know, just from uh, meeting people. Another person that was speaking there is Noam Rosenthal, who we've had on the show. So so yeah, it was it was really great, and I had a wonderful time. So my first pick is you know conferences and participating in them, especially as a speaker. Um, my second pick is uh, a TV show that I'm watching. It's not, it's not too smart or sophisticated, but it's just a lot of fun. Uh, and it's called uh, The Recruit. Uh, it actually paints uh, the CIA as a bunch of crazy psychopaths who are out to sabotage, sabotage each other. But uh, like I said, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's obviously not very realistic. But uh, I enjoyed watching it. Uh, you know, if when you want to turn your brain off, and you know, at the end of the day, it's a it's a fun uh, it's a fun series to watch on Netflix. So that would be my my second pick. Uh, my third pick is a fantasy series of books that I'm currently reading. It's a series called the series itself is called uh, The Faithful and the Fallen uh, by John Gwynn. Uh, the first book is called Malice. The second one, I think, is called Valor. I'm currently in, in the second book. Uh, it's a bit challenging to get started with because he throws a whole bunch of names at you and they're all kind of Celtic-inspired, so they all kind of read fun- funny and sound similar and you start forgetting, wait a minute, who is who? Because you know every chapter is a different character. But once the story gets rolling, it's actually quite engaging and, and, and fun, and I'm enjoying it so far. So that would be my, my third pick. And my final pick is kind of a downer, so I apologize for finishing on a low note, but it's the ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, which we've kind of normalized because it's, you know, it's been going on for so long. I don't think people are thinking much about it anymore, but the people in Ukraine are still suffering. Uh, and there's a whole lot of devastation going on and what, and you know, so whatever you can do for the people of Ukraine, you know, I'm talking to our listeners, whatever you can do, please do it, you know, and don't, and don't forget what's going on. And now over to you. What are your picks, Austin? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I really appreciate that you, you call out the, the war in Ukraine for every episode. Um, I think that's uh, a good Thing to be doing and, and keep people yeah uh, aware we, we of. tend to to normalize things when they you know take place for such a long time and it feels like there's nothing yeah. that we can really do about it uh so yeah it's it's really discouraging in that regard yeah and it's it's important to reiterate that there's so many people uh in the developer community that are currently still being affected yes. and impacted by what's going on. I mean, these are like colleagues and friends and... Yeah, when you know, I, people, Wix, the yeah. company that I used to work at, uh, actually has offices or had offices in, in Ukraine. I, I don't think the people in, in Ukraine are actually working there. I think, you know, a lot of them, they move them to other places. But, um, but I've actually visited Ukraine several times uh, while I was working at Wix, you know, and met some great people and visited, you know, lovely places. And it's really heartbreaking. To think about the current yeah. situation. Well, yeah. Um, now, br- I guess in addition bring us to that, back up now. <laughs> Lift our spirits. Great, great. Yeah. 
Uh, remind me to do picks first left <laughs> next time. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to jump on with your uh, conferences thing. I think that conferences are wonderful, um, particularly around meeting people. I'm also going to give a shout out to, uh, in that same thread, uh, local meetups, because I think that as great as conferences are, as much fun as they are, I think local meetups provide a more unique opportunity to uh, interact with the same people on a regular basis. And mm. I think there's a lot of value in that. And your local um, community, that, which obviously has also value. Yes, yes which um, conferences, as great as they are, uh, they're great in different ways. And, and meetups can offer that, which uh, conferences cannot. Um, and then I would also say uh, Panda CSS, since we mentioned it, definitely give it a look. Uh, have fun playing with it. Let me know what you think. I would love to see what people are doing with it. Um, and then lastly is something that's just kind of a fun thing. Uh, there's a show called Jury Duty mm. that I've been watching. It's fantastic. Uh, so I, I really try to uh, send the message that people that are learning and uh, in you know new to the development community and people that have been around for a while to uh, practice extending uh, empathy and compassion and kindness both to others and to yourself as we're all going through this journey. Uh, of learning. It's it's a hard career. Yes. So try and keep that in mind. And I think uh, Jury Duty is a funny show that takes place where an entire uh, trial is basically staged, except and everyone's an actor except for one Jury Duty member. And he gets put through progressively more and more absurd scenarios with what's going on with the trial. And somehow they had managed to just like cast at random this guy who ends up being the sweetest and kindness, kindest, and like it's just hilarious. And so it's, a sort it's very of a wholesome. Truman show, sort of a thing. It's very much a Truman show. Uh, it's like a Truman show. It has the same sort of good feels as um, what is it? Uh, Ted Lasso. So if mm. you like Ted Lasso, you're gonna like this this person. He's like the real the real life version, kind so of. So what? what? He, he this is like a, they did a, a sort of a reality show. He's a real person yes. that he did know that he yes. was being. It's all in into... camera. Oh, interesting. Yes. Where where is it uh, running this show? Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. I think. Uh, well, that's what maybe. the internet is for. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes it... afterwards. Yeah. No, don't it's a... it. Okay. <laughs> oh well, that's it. Okay, so if people want to get in touch with you, you know, talk about the stuff that we talked on on this episode or whatever. What's the best way to reach out to you? Uh, my website, Austin Gill with one L, austingill.com uh, is where you can find all of my links and stuff. I do a lot of blogging there. I'm also on Twitch and YouTube and stuff, but uh, Twitter, but <laughs> while it's uh, while it survives. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Just go to my website is probably the, and then you have your choice of. Yeah, we keep trying to flavors. like you know, kind of leave Twitter and then get pulled back because there's nobody, nowhere else really to go. Uh, yeah. So for a while, I, you know, everybody was heading over to Mastodon and now Mastodon yeah. seems kind of dead. Uh, and now there's Blue Sky, but we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, it's all right. Just, I don't know. I'm trying to make my own little weird space on the internet and you can find me there. Cool, very cool. So Austin, thank you again for coming on our show again. Uh, and it's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it a lot. I've learned stuff for sure. Uh, and Well, that's, a, that's quite a compliment. You're welcome. 
And, uh, you know, and to our listeners, we'll see you next time. So bye.